with gratitude practices? Well, grateful to whom? Who's the object of the gratitude? Most of the time, they're not specifying, but I think that gratitude only makes sense within the context of a bond. And gratitude is one of the most powerful ways of building your bond with someone else. So if people could practice being grateful to, uh, to persons in their life, that is very powerful and they're building their bond with those persons. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of The Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, good to be here with you again. Hey, Sharif. Thanks for having me back. Of course. Hey, Kevin. Well, at the end of the last episode, we were talking about reframing. And you mentioned this very interesting idea of mindfulness of the heart, arguing that in some way, mindfulness of the heart, this continuous mindfulness, is necessary to be able to reframe effectively. Now, at the same time, uh, anyone experienced with OptumWorks approach knows that the order that we typically talk about things is reframing and then mindfulness and then challenge, reframe mindfulness challenge, ready, set, go. So I wonder if you could help us understand this apparent contradiction. Does reframing come first or does mindfulness come first? Or are we talking about a more organic process that there's not really this strict order all the time? So Mm -hmm. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And the literature distinguishes between states and traits. So when you talk about mindfulness, you can talk about the state of mindfulness, which is when a person, say, is actually being mindful, deliberately practicing it. And then they also talk about the trait of mindfulness, which is simply how habitually mindful are you? So if a person is rushing around all the time, and never really attending to what they're thinking or feeling, that would be a lower trait of mindfulness. Now, normally in optimal work, we don't like talking about traits, you know, but it is just talking about a habitual practice. Interestingly, one of the maybe sensitive indicators of how high your trait of mindfulness is, is can you feel your heart beating? So people who can at will feel their heart beating are higher in this trait of mindfulness than those people who can't. And with some regular practice of mindfulness in one's day, you actually get better and better at being able to feel the heartbeat. So that just the body gets better at detecting whatever you practice detecting. And so the more people are in a state of, I, I should say, the more people are like trying to practice mindfulness all day long, let's leave aside state and trait. Uh, the more you're trying to practice mindfulness, I would say that's when you have more opportunities to practice reframing. Because reframing is, it's like a flash in the intellect. It happens in a second. You make a discovery. You see something in a new way. You see, you know, you could work towards it, but still at the moment of the reframe, it is like a light bulb going off. And it's great when people get practice having that effect. It takes some work and then you feel it. In your body, you feel the effect of the reframe. But mindfulness is much more long. So you can, you can be mindful in your whole morning routine. You can be mindful on the whole commute to work if you commute. You can be mindful during different parts of the day or even the whole of the day. So it's easier to practice mindfulness in an ongoing way. Because really when it comes to reframing, once you have achieved the reframe, for that particular activity, there might, there might not be that much more work to do. Now you just bring your attention wholly into the present moment 
you know, and, and, and kind of launch into that task. But mindfulness is much more a way of being. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. See, the way I normally think of it is, I guess, reframing is going from a negative frame to a positive frame. So uh, now you could talk about consistently having a positive frame over the course of, say, your commute or your morning. So it'd be this just, you know, holding or maintaining a kind of positive disposition. Or And I think this is actually where we're going to go a little bit in the episode, too, is just having, having kind of positive affectation towards what you're doing, these positive affections. Uh, and then mindfulness, similarly to reframing that you can have this moment where you're very distracted and all over the place. And then you can kind of just get your attention to your breath and focus right there. And that's like a moment of recollection that you can then sustain over time. And then I'm not sure about challenge is challenge kind of the same where you have these two modes and you can flip into one mode. Yeah. So I I think of challenge is like, a kind of tone that is in the day that builds on mindfulness of the day. So this goes into the literature also on flow and can flow be, you know, the, the different states of flow where you have at the one level, you have discontinuous episodes of flow where occasionally you go into flow and flow essentially is what happens when you add a challenge to being already mindful and positive. So you have a positive mindful attitude in a task and then you add a challenge to it, you do go right into flow. And people will do that all throughout the day in little bits when they hit a little patch in their work that they like, and there's a challenge there. But you can also learn to go to have continuous flow. So, and that in the literature is when people are learning to continually keep up a certain level of challenge during their day, not too much, not too little. There's like a sweet spot where you can learn just by having little ways of embracing little challenges. You keep yourself in flow throughout the day. And then the highest state of that is what they call vital engagement. And that is when you bring the ultimate meaning of your life into the smallest actions. So I get all this from a uh, uh, researcher at, at um, Harvard, uh, Dan Brown. So not that Dan Brown, but there's another Dan Brown who is a, a Harvard psychologist, uh, and he, and this is his review of the literature that the that's what it shows in peak performance literature. These three states of flow, and they come up with the term of vital engagement. So I, you know, we use that in our master class. I really love the idea of what it means to be putting your whole heart into what you're doing with the highest motives for doing that all day long, and that the key, the entrance into that, is being able to do it in smaller and smaller ways. Because if you can do it in very small ways, well, those get multiplied throughout your day. So it's one thing learning how to reframe a really big challenge that you know that there's a coworker or a family member that you're going to have a difficult conversation and going into it, you're all getting, you're getting yourself ready for it. And that's important. But it is even more continual practice when you're able to do it in small ways all throughout the day with little challenges that you use as a way of getting yourself to fully live in the present moment right then. So I think they all do go together, continual challenge, continual mindfulness, and a continually positive reframe. Great. Yeah, I, th- I think it might strike people, it certainly strikes me as, wow, okay, this is very advanced. I mean, okay, to reframe one difficult concept, I can see yeah, that's important and that's valuable. And 
I want to get better at doing that. And sometimes it can be very tough. But then talking about continually having a positive frame, being continually, you know, totally in the present moment, mindful, continually challenging myself, vital engagement, uh, it just seems very lofty. So is that something that in your practice, you would, someone struggling with anxiety, you say, well, no, just engage your highest ideals in the smallest of your actions, you know, every single time. That, that seems, how do you practically uh, incorporate that into uh, someone's growth, into helping someone? Well, let's say that you know, I would say a two pronged approach that it is really important to help people with reframing the biggest challenges. And if there are big patterns of avoidance, so for instance, say a person is struggling with a particular craving, and say it's in some serious area. So, well, then you do definitely want to help that person think about what um, it would look like to have the craving and not act on it. Or say it's anger, you know, and they get, they have really bad anger problems that just come out with the kids. And then with other people, they're fine. But so it's this one localized thing where they're unreasonably angry with the children. So, well, you think about then what would the really, what would strength look like when it comes to anger? Well, it would mean that they could have anger of any size and not act on it, but stay gentle. So technically, that's what Aristotle calls meekness, and and Aquinas follows him. So meekness is the ability to have any level of anger and not act on it. And temperance is the ability to have any level of craving and not act on it. Uh, So what you try to do then is help people to get through the bigger cravings or the bigger waves of anger and to see that the essential skill that they need in those moments is not to make the thing go away or to not have it or prevent it, although they should do what they can, but really the skill is to be mindful of the emotion in their heart as it surges so that once they get past a couple of the really big surges without giving in and they make this discovery that if I can just stay mindful of what my heart is feeling right now, to feel it in the chest, which is right around there, to pay attention to it, they can start getting through these really big waves. And then it's like an aha moment. Okay, then they are more eager to practice it in the small ways too. And then they realize that, oh, there are small little frustrations. Like a frustration that you have you know, it, you know, it could be a little moment of impatience. Well, it's a lot like anger. It's a lot like a craving. These things are all very similar to each other. We use different words, but they're really quite similar in the end. So you could just say, okay, and you learn, and they learn to practice working on small frustrations. So whether it's big or whether it's small, they're working at both ends of it. So you can't work from both ways. And so you want people to get kind of um, like sea legs, like, you know, that they're able to like handle waves, big waves. But then you also want them just to be totally accommodated to the ordinary little rocking of the boat. Yeah. And then, so, okay, I like that, that you can work the the big difficulties and then also in the smaller situations. Then in both of the examples you, you gave is kind of overcoming a negative or overcoming an obstacle. Is there any, is it then, okay, once you've overcome all these obstacles and you're good, you don't need to worry about it anymore? Or are there ways of continually developing it? And is there a kind of positive approach that that you encourage people to take? Yeah, there there is. Um, 
I think that, yeah, the other one, just to throw it out there though, but courage is the ability to feel any level of anxiety and not flee. So in, with all of the negative emotions, uh, what you are, the virtue involved is being able to feel it and not act on it. And so the feeling becomes less and less relevant. So then in the end, does a courageous person feel fear? Well, it's the topic of courage. So it's relevant in one way, but it's also irrelevant because the, they're able to feel any level of fear and not act on it. You know, and then the same with the temperate person can have any level of cravings and not act on it. So it's the willingness to actually feel the emotion that gives people the freedom from acting on the emotion. Right? So if you're willing to feel it, you cannot at the same time act on it. That's this dynamic you see with the negative emotions, which are all fight or flight, that in some way, once you get over the urge to neutralize the negative feeling, it just habituates on its own. And in fact, you use the adrenaline you get to make that mindful habituation process even more intense. So the adrenaline you have in those moments actually allows you to habituate faster. But on the, on the positive side, there's a, I think there's a really fascinating, and this is where psychology hasn't done as much work, but you see it described in like the writings of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, you know, that how do positive emotions get into the heart? So the feelings of love, or it could be uh, gratitude. Just think of those two examples. So if you have a movement in your heart of love and gratitude, what, the, what Aquinas would say is that that is actually flowing into your emotions in the heart from your will, the affection, he says, in the will, so that you actually have all of these things in the will in some kind of higher way you know, that you have deliberate power over and then they redound, this is the word, they redound or flow, overflow into the emotions of the heart. So a very strong movement in the will of love or gratitude causes then this overflowing into the heart. And that's where it gets interesting. If you can be mindfully aware of that overflow and deliberately second it with your will, you intensify it in the will which causes it to overflow even more. And as it overflows more, you feel it increase and you it's like essentially you rejoice in the increase of it and you feel it more. And as you do that, the will is seconding it and growing in it. So that every positive emotion in the heart is a virtue when consented to and seconded by the will. So that's actually how you become a more grateful person. You do, you, you, so you have at some point, where does it start in the will? Yes, it generally starts some, with some affection in the will of gratitude, overflows a bit into the heart, but then you second it, and that's how you become more grateful. It's kind of like, how does that, how does that sound, Sharif? Any yeah, it sounds great. So then you're saying uh, that to connect it back to this idea of continual mindfulness, uh, is this something that, like, when should people, when you do this, when you someone does something good for you and you're great, when you say thank you and you try to mean it more and you have that affection and the will of gratitude and then it overflows and you're seconding it so you're more and more grateful for that to that person for what they did for you and then you mentioned the case before okay if you're commuting on the train you can be mindful all the time is this something a common thing now people do is gratitude practice i'm not sure what you think of that uh in the morning or in the evening three things you're grateful for today um so yeah yeah maybe just getting into 
how how you expect people practically to be doing this? It's hard to specify, but I can think of there there are different scenarios, I think. Um, the most common would be some time of meditation so that people, while they're meditating, will deliberately work on increasing one of these affections. And so you kick it off by repeating some word in your mind. So you can be kind of like, if imagine that you're um, talking to someone you know, and you're expressing how sorry you are for something you know that you you know that you did that you wish you wouldn't have done, and you want it to not matter for your relationship in the future. You want to get past it. You want to like, well, if you, you could imagine yourself saying the words in your mind and then meaning them more, you'd feel them actually more in the heart. Or to say, like, what would be to tell someone important in your life that you love them, and to repeat that, and then as it's there you try to like to mean those words more and the meaning of it. So you're not just like in the left brain way, getting the words right, but the right brain actually milks them and milks the affection in them, you know, to mean them and intend them more. Um, it's the same as saying, thank you. So imagine the gratitude, imagine expressing the gratitude, imagine the words you use and then try to mean them more intensely. So this is how people learn to work with their will immediately, to actually do will work, or probably better is called bond work. So because these are all the affections that strengthen bonds between people. So there's you know love and the desire for the, the, the other and the gratitude for the other, and then kind of a sorrow if for things that had weakened the bond or broke it. So, but those, so these are all things that really directly touch on our bond with others and that work that bond. But on our own, even if the other person isn't there like in the room, or even if they are, but we're not like talking out loud to them, uh, there's a sense of working a bond. And that you do that with the affections, to deepen the affection. A lot of times I think of this as the, um, the heart has to learn to resonate with the will. It's like a gong. Imagine the heart is a very large gong. And if people aren't well practiced at ringing the gong, it's like someone going up to the gong and hitting it with a plastic fork. So there's just this kind of tinny, empty sound, maybe a tiny bit of resonance in the gong, but not much. Versus a person, you know, coming at it with like a running swing with the ideal mallet for the gong and they strike it and it resonates for five minutes, ten minutes. So I think that's what this is like. You know, and so, you know, there are forms of just doing a kind of loving kindness meditation or just focusing on the affection of love in a time of meditation that really is like striking a gong and just resonates. And people can learn to keep it resonating longer and longer. I think to the point where it actually resonates all day. And when they come back to a time of meditation, it just is already there resonating and it just increases again. So it becomes with this kind of day-long mindfulness of the heart, some a resonance in the heart that is kept up. I think it's only possible when lived with the most important relationships in a person's life. That's, yeah, because that's to it's not just some kind of psychological exercise to change yourself into someone who is constantly feeling emotion emotions, but it's it needs to be like you like you said, it starts in the will. So it needs to first be directed towards what's good and the the real bonds that you have in your life. Yeah, and all of these affective work like that is bond work. 
And so that's what I'm uh, with gratitude practices. Well, grateful to whom? Who's the object of the gratitude? Most of the time, they're not specifying, but I think that gratitude only makes sense within the context of a bond. And gratitude is one of the most powerful ways of building your bond with someone else. So if people could practice being grateful to, uh, to persons in their life, that is very powerful and they're building their bond with those persons. And so I think that's a much more powerful way of doing it than simply listing three things I am generically grateful for. You know, you know, which, you know, if someone were to say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, so grateful, you know, um, like, I don't know, for how good I am at basketball, <laughs> how much weight I can lift, you know, uh, my singing voice. Well, okay. Yeah. But like, then you'd have to say to whom. So gratitude only makes real sense, I think, in, in, in the context of bonds. And, and, and the same with sorrow. Even things like, you know, like guilt is a much maligned emotion, but if it really is like a sorrow of love, it's very healthy for people, but only really in the context of bonds, not as a free-floating thing that just kind of makes people feel like they're never good enough <laughs> or things like that. But, uh, but in terms of like, actually, like, are you, it's really a desire for a stronger bond. And, and, and I think that that's actually, it's a very powerful force, but so uh, every positive emotion when felt and seconded becomes the virtue of the same name. So that you actually are growing in being grateful by feeling gratitude and then seconding that feeling in your mind. And this is the kind of thing that people just need to experience because this is all very right-brained. And so it defies in some way total explanation i think well or at least it takes a long time to explain it for the left brain but but the feel but once people understand what it's like then it becomes more intuitively obvious that these ideals and the bonds all go together yeah now kevin i think uh i think there's a very beautiful picture you're presenting earlier you had talked about being more mindful of the negative emotions and now it's about how to produce and intensify these more positive emotions. Uh, and earlier you had given, the, I keep coming back to this example you gave of what people do on their commute. Uh, so I think when, if someone's commuting to work, maybe it's, it's common that people might experience more frequently these kind of negative emotions or even just thoughts like ruminations or worries or things of that nature. So are you saying that you know, people throughout the day should be trying to foster also these emotions and constantly be catching themselves when they notice that, oh, I'm worrying or, oh, I'm being a little bit jealous of this person for this thing or impatient or angry. And let me try to switch that and foster gratitude say, to someone, always to someone, I point taken. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I think then what people need is a kind of inner space. So there has to be enough room for us to live inside of ourselves so that there's an inner, there's like, there's an inner life um, or like a tent that we're able to put up. And sometimes those phrases that capture what you're trying to increase, the phrases of gratitude, you know, the phrases of love, you know, that you could be, it's almost like the pole of the tent. Those phrases become the pole that hold up the tent, you know, and, but then underneath that, there is this greater awareness then of what a person is experiencing in their heart. Like we talk about in the masterclass, 
the the three day long ways of improving mindfulness are stillness, silence, and slowness. So staying still when you can, or when you have to move, moving more slowly, and trying to keep yourself more interiorly and exteriorly silent. But stillness, silence, and slowness are space creators within us. So, and they allow us then to practice this kind of bond work. So, and the sky is the limit for how deep and profound that bond work can get. You know, I think it's it's capable of being you know, an ocean of love that people experience at times throughout the day. So, and I think that that's the height of really of of functioning that your your highest loves, your deepest loves, are somehow resonating as you go throughout your day. You know, at some level, you know that this is true even in any professional work. You know that you know if. Uh, as like a physician, you know, the love of that we have for serving our patients, the love of the patient and trying to help them that can, that kind of love can actually be very operative throughout the entire time we're seeing people. And it is what gives us the right tone of doing our utmost to be of the greatest service to this person. I think all professional work has that capacity in it and all work in the home, you know, that there are services rendered for different reasons and the reasons could be love. And so, and if so, then that gives people more and more the possibility of expanding their heart, deepening it. And that's ultimately what the practicing mindfulness of the heart is about, to have the deepest motives in the smallest actions throughout the day. Wonderful, Kevin. Well, I think that's a terrific note for us to end on there uh, with this very noble ideal that you've presented here. So continue striving for that uh, until we, uh, we get back next week. All right, Sharif. Well, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out OptumWork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.